Hey team, if you are a return listener to this podcast and this content has helped you out in any way, it would be absolutely amazing if you could leave me a quick rating and review. It only takes a minute and it helps me out heaps. All right, guys, let's get to the podcast. This is the commercial property show, Australia show number 55. The really hard truth is there's only going to be about 2% of people that have significant income. I mean, I, I don't want to mention any names, but there was somebody saying recently that all you need to retire on is $250,000 and in like $250,000 in your super fund. And it's like, what are you actually doing? Are you just sitting around twiddling your thumbs? Is that because I actually want to have a life. Hey, commercial property community. Thank you for joining me once again. My name is Andrew Bean. I am the host of the Commercial Property Show podcast, the number one commercial property podcast in Australia. Thanks to you guys, the listeners. So I have another awesome interview for you today. And here it is. Brendan Nichols is my next guest, and he is a profound international public speaker, serial entrepreneur, business mentor. He was even a trainer for Robert Kiyosaki. Yes, he was on circuit training with Robert Kiyosaki, the man himself. He's just the all-round top bloke, has really, really good ideas on how to become wealthy, getting back your time. He has great philosophies around it. We had such a fun chat. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. But first, a quick announcement. If you guys are struggling to run the numbers on commercial property or worried about, you know, is this deal going to stack up because of rising interest rates and inflation, or, you know, you're trying to figure out how much value you can add to your commercial property, I've created a free resource on my new website at www.andrewbean.com.au. It's the free DIY cash flow kit, totally free comes with three spreadsheets to give you the ability to be able to run the numbers on commercial property easily without any mistakes. I also created the inflation risk analyzer. So you put in all of your details of your investment and it will show you how high your interest rates will have to go up for you to be underwater. Trust me, this is something that you need to be double checking before you invest in a property. So this gives you the insight to be able to check how high interest rates can go before you would actually be underwater and it will be a negatively geared investment, which is not what we wanna be doing in commercial property. The last spreadsheet is a value add calculator. This gives you the opportunity to be able to calculate how much increased equity you can have on the property by forcing value, by forcing income onto the property. This is a really cool spreadsheet because it gives you exactly to the dollar how much extra value you can add to the property. I designed these free spreadsheets to be really, really easy for everyone to be able to use. And it's my gift to you guys for being such awesome listeners and making this show so huge. So go to 
www.andrewbean.com.au. Download the free DIY cash flow kit today and start running numbers on commercial property like a pro. All right, let's get to the show. My next guest is a best-selling author, entrepreneur, business mentor, and international presenter. It's Brendan Nichols. How are you, mate? Hey, great to be on the call, Andrew. Fantastic, mate. So for the listeners who don't know you, could you just give us a little bit of a background on like your business history and property and stuff like that? Probably the easiest way to start from the beginning is when I left school, everybody's heard of a gap year. I had a gap decade. I just traveled around the world and went surfing. Really, that was pretty much it. And I I did little entrepreneurial ventures of buy products and artwork in Madagascar and sell them on the street in Sydney and set up little market stalls. And then at age 28, I actually got serious and I opened up a real estate company in the southwest of Sydney. And within three and a half months, that was the most successful selling real estate company in the entire southwest area. And I actually had no experience when I opened that. When I say no experience, none. What happened, there was a friend of mine who said, I've got this great opportunity. There's this real estate agency, and it's about three or four kilometers from the main shopping center. There's only six shops. There's no walk-in traffic, and it's gone broke twice. Would you like to have a crack at it? And being an idiot at the time, I went, yeah, sure, I'll have a go. And I think that's actually what saved me is I, I didn't know. I hadn't gone to real estate school, and I just came in with a completely different approach. Anyway, I did that for a while, and then I got an offer from a very big developer, and that led to opening my own company as a project marketer. I had a project marketing company in the middle of the city. I was 50 metres from Martin Place, right in the middle of the city. And that was incredibly successful, probably for our size. We certainly weren't the biggest, but one of the most successful, probably the most successful. All my sales guys were in the top 1% of producers and yeah, that's my background. And then people started asking me what I, you know, how I was successful, and that led to seminars. And I've talked all around the world, I've done that for three decades, tens of thousands of people, all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Fantastic, mate. Well, it sounds like you've been very, very busy. I just wanted to unpack a little bit of that if I can. So yeah. you were doing retail arbitrage before it was an actual thing. You'd buy something in Madagascar, did you say, and sell it in Sydney? That's correct. Yeah. Or I'd sell, you know, posters on the street in Johannesburg in South Africa. Or I'd, I did all of that kind of stuff. And I travel in areas that I was forced to really think on my feet. And so I was an entrepreneur before I knew I was an entrepreneur. Wow. That's and, amazing. Yeah, and that's what stood me in good stead when I got into a real business, yeah. So jumping into the real estate business, so you didn't have a license at all, you just, you know, were able just to jump under somebody in. else's license. At the time, I went, why would I want to spend years doing that? I'll just go out and make, make a success of it. And it was my business, even though I was operating under somebody's license, I took out a $10,000 overdraft. That's not a lot of money now, but Back then, it was all the money in all the world, and I was like literally broke, and I had a wife and a three-year-old child that had followed the crazy guy into this strange new adventure, and I, the first month, I didn't sell a thing. I remember one night, I was had my elbows, everyone had gone to bed. My wife and had no idea that we were in trouble. I hadn't made a single sale in the first month, and I had my elbows on this cheap, cracked-floor mica table. Andrew, we used to actually sleep not in a bed, but a fold-out sofa, and it never actually folded out straight. It folded out into like a shallow V. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there at the table with my 
elbows on this horrible kitchen table and like there's just thin streaks of moonlight coming through the window reflecting on the table and I just I had this what I call a snap point I couldn't stand my life any longer and I just vowed I was going to make it and what I've actually seen Andrew is that the people that actually have the biggest jumps in my seminars are people who just get to have a snap point where they can't stand their life anymore and this is why so many like dead poor broke immigrants end up becoming incredibly successful They've come from a war-torn country and they never want to go back to that. So I just didn't want to go back to that disaster. And and I would say that's the first big clue that I'm giving everybody who's listening to this. And I always believe, I've been doing this for a long time, I love what I do. I don't need the money anymore. I've gone past that a long time ago. But as corny as it sounds, I love what I do. And I always believe there's somebody out there that, what I say could actually change their life. And if you're listening, that could be you. And so if you're listening and you really want to change your life, the snap point is where you start. The place where you start, where you go, I've had enough of my life and I want something better. I absolutely love that, mate. Like I know that in my own life, that's why I kind of started this commercial property journey. I was just, I don't want to be at a desk for the rest of my life doing what I'm doing. And property was a great way to get forward in life and move forward so i know exactly what you're talking about and i'm sure other people have felt the same thing it's awesome so mate today i wanted to have a chat pretty much about your life journey from becoming a young man or from being a young man and then becoming a multi-millionaire renowned business coach and mentor so we've already spoken about your first venture into the workforce being the real estate agent how long did you actually do that business for and what happened to that business well, eventually what happened, it didn't actually last that long, like a couple of years, really. I got an offer. My first introduction with property is I bought my first house when I was 19. And I really didn't have any idea what I was doing at the time. Like somebody said, you, you just need to own a house. And so I borrowed all the money and I actually bought it for $14,000. And that was actually in a little suburb called Lilyfield, which is next to Balmain in Sydney. <laughs> yep, I know it. <laughs> I thought it was genius. Because I sold it a few years later for $36,000, so almost tripled my money. But I wasn't a genius. And we'll get to that in a little while. In a while, about we're going to talk about what I, my personal philosophy on investing in real estate or investing, period. So we'll talk about that later. But, yeah, so I didn't stay in the business for very long because I, I got an offer from a, a developer. He was going to build 50 villas, and he, uh, he was staging them in 50 villas 50 villas, 50 villas, so three lots of 50. And he gave the first lot to pretty much every agent in town. And I, I'd only been in the game just a little while. This guy, I called him Mr. Krusty. He's a great guy, but when he'd talk, he would open his mouth about a quarter of an inch, just a few centimetres, and he'd talk in this really tough, crusty tone. He's, <laughs> you always got the feeling with this guy that he'd been burned really badly and he was never going to trust anybody again. And he, but he was a very, very good operator. Anyway, so I... I ended up selling 47 out of the 50, the other agents. Wow. Three. So he was blown away. And so he sort of opened the door to, I went, wow, why would I run around trying to get 50 listings when I could just get one of 50 villas or go and get 200 blocks of land? So then I went into project marketing. And what I used to do is I'd do full page ads in the Sydney papers, a right-hand page, which is an extra loading. 
and that would be on page seven, nine, or eleven. So you can imagine how incredibly expensive that was. Mm. And then I had this sales team. We're operating out of the city, and the first week I was in that business, I I did two full page ads, and I didn't sell, sell a single property. And I was like, oh my god! So I happened to know this guy called Stan Johnson, who was a major operator in the city at the time. And I went to him and I said, hey, Mr. Johnson, can I have some time? He gave me 40 minutes and I went, I've done this, this. He said, this is not like normal residential real estate agencies. This is a whole different world. And he told me what I'd done wrong. And anyway, the next week after that, we corrected and we took off. It was amazing after that. I never had to solicit listings the entire time I was in business. People heard about me. They heard I was a troubleshooter. That I My specialty was getting developers out of trouble. And so the developments just came to me and all I had to do is figure out. And project marketing is much more lucrative, much more fun than being an agent if you get the formula right. And so what was the actual change that he made in your advertising to make it actually work? What he told me really essentially is that we're putting too much information in the ad. He said, what's the purpose of the ad? And I went, well, to get a phone call. And he said, well, that's what your ad should be, to get a phone call. It doesn't sound like much, but it was a huge shift. And I think a lot of times people in relationship to social media advertising or any kind of marketing or advertising, people have got to go think about, well, okay, I'm marketing. You know, if there's any developers out there, here's a tip for you. I've sort of come from a history of, I've gone through two recessions. I had a project marketing company through two recessions. One of those was 14% mortgage rates. The other was 17% mortgage rates. Well, actually the first one, sorry, I think was 11 or 12% mortgage rates. So I've kind of seen it all, you know, like not all of it, but I've seen a fair bit of it. And what I found is all the developers, a lot of the guys that I was, you know, working with at the time were older guys, 50s, 60s. 90% of all the ones that I met that were really effective developers were ex-project marketers because they understood the marketing. I mean, we haven't had a recession in Australia in 31 years. And if you run into headwinds, and you don't actually know how it is to sell. And bearing in mind that most real estate agents or salespeople are order takers, they're not salespeople, and they're certainly not marketers. I never used to advertise or market in any way like them at all. They put these, hey, I'm just going to be no BS here. They put these really dumb ads in like, cute fixer-upper, you know, needs a bit of tender loving care. And you're reading this or you're watching this and you've got your finger down your throat, you feel like throwing up. I would actually write, the headline would be, this house is so old, it's, you know, it was here when Captain Cook arrived, or this house is a bomb. And it was honest advertising, and it was revolutionary advertising at the time, and no one was doing it. The phone would ring off the hook, you know, or we'd get the calls. And so to come back to the point, whenever you're doing advertising, you've got to go, I'm doing this to get the next step. Therefore, what is the next step? And so... For you developers out there or budding developers out there, you need to know the sales process. And you go, yeah, but don't worry, Brendan, I'm going to get somebody to do that for me. It's fine to go and get somebody to do it for you as long as you know whether what they're doing is working. There's a very good project marketer. He's selling everything over with Facebook ads. That's 90 plus percent of his sales is through Facebook ads. But he actually knows how to actually do the ads. And a lot of Digital marketing agencies will just give you what's called vanity statistics, you know, click-through rates and tell you how things are going, but they're not giving you the real deal. I've got developers, one in particular who rings me up and he gets me to talk to the project market and find out if they're any good or not. So 
yeah, just words to the wise there. Yeah, see what I mean? You still see that in marketing today with uh, listings and stuff like that, where they're withholding information just to squeeze you to get to call them. Very, very common still, isn't it? Yeah, all the ads pretty much look the same. We won't stay too long in this topic because I could go on for hours. Yeah. Fair enough. So, mate, that, that property that you bought in Lilyfield, did you actually yeah. live in that, that, that no. property for a while? or did you just no, it was an investment. It was an investment property. Well, well, when I was growing up, there was a, a legend down the beach, and he was in his 50s at the time, and his name was Snowy McAllister. He's a legend in the old surfing community. And Snowy never used to work. He'd be out surfing all the time. And I asked him, how do you get to do all of this? And he said, you see that block of units over there, the four units? He said, I live in one and I rent the other three. And that's whether something popped in my brain. I was 17 at the time, but something popped in my brain. But at the time, I didn't have the education. Like now, I've got a lot of education in terms of investments and business. And I didn't have the education at the time. And I so I bought a property. I went, oh, that's good. It seems like a good price. I'll just buy that. While it was great, I ended up working out that when you sell a property, you just kill your cash flow. Mm, that's right. So did yeah. that property actually cash flow at the time or was it more neutral? Oh, yeah. It was like a just made a profit. I'll probably just give you the simple formula for anybody that's listening out there. The, the real truth is, you know, I've trained tens of thousands of people. I've, there's a lot of wealthy people that come in, to my seminars. And 95% of them, this is the reality of 95% of the rich, is they own a business and they take the funds and then they invest it in real estate or other assets, the assets that produce a rent or a dividend. And it's really that simple because can you do it all on debt? Yeah, but that's scary. It's easy to do that one in the United States than here. And the real truth is, having been in this industry and knowing most of the big players in terms of education, I don't actually teach real estate investing. What I teach is how to make millions in business and be financially independent. But what most people in the education of real estate are doing is that they're making most of their money out of education. (laughs) And that's a business. That's their business. And if you've got cash flow and you've got large chunks of cash, it's fairly simple that you can make the journey a lot shorter than if you're just trying to be strictly an investor. So I would say like literally 95% of all the rich people that I know, they're all in business. You know, people go, hang on, what about Warren Buffett? Well, he's Berkshire Hathaway's, that's a business. It's an incredible business. Yeah, it's a business. And so Ray Dahlia, worth $19 billion. People go, he's an investor. Yeah, he's a hell of an investor. He is. Amazing investor. And he's one of the guys that I listen to, but he makes his money out of Bridgewater. Like that's his business. It's a hedge fund. And so- it used to be a $5 billion buy-in to get into his hedge fund, and now it's closed the fund. Yeah, well. I think Ray's doing okay. I think he is too, yeah. So, mate, you've obviously spoken a little bit of cash flow, and I already know a little bit of background on you that your strategy is more towards cash flow. When did you figure that out? Like, in Australia, historically, it's been, you know, your negative gear, you give the properties you wait for the the market to make you and then you sell one down and live off the other one for cash flow. You know, when did you really figure out the cash flow piece? Well, for starters, negative gearing is, you know, the question you need to ask yourself, is that a real estate strategy or is it a taxation strategy? Yeah, that's right. The really hard truth is there's only going to be about 2% of people that have significant income. I mean, I, 
I don't want to mention any names, but there was somebody saying recently that all you need to retire on is $250,000 and in like $250,000 in your super fund. And it's like, what are you actually doing? Are you just sitting around twiddling your thumbs? Is that because I actually want to have a life? And so to have significant income, and let's define that, okay? So we're talking about income, passive income, where you never have to work again. I used to have a saying that it started at $80,000, and this is not true anymore because of inflation's just gone up. So we'll just talk about current. You, you need about $100,000 to have in passive income to have a reasonable kind of life. You need about $150,000 to $180,000 to turn left on the plane into business class. When you go overseas, they buy down like flat seats. Yeah, I like that. If you do your numbers, so we're talking 250, you're starting to pretty much do anything that you like. If you work out, like, let's say, okay, well, I just want, and you've got to own your own home, right? On top of that, we're not factoring a lot of debt in here. So run the numbers and you're going to find out that you need a big chunk of money somehow, or and plus some significant investment skills to get you to that say $150,000 a year, and that's the beginning levels. That's where business comes in. Because if you have the ability to make seven figures of income a year, not revenue, income, suddenly you're just taking giant chunks of income and then just going bang, buying stuff. And you can do that every year. And you can have really low LVRs, you know, like Landa. You can have very little debt or you can have no debt. I'm a no-debt person, but we can get into that later. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, you were also a trainer for Robert Kiyosaki at some point during your career. Can you tell me how, how that experience was? When I transitioned out of real estate, I there's 40,000 graduates that Robert Kiyosaki uh, had in the seminars that he was doing. And this is before Rich Dad Poor Dad. This is before he was well-known. And he only ever certified six instructors, and I was one of those six. And no one ever got there in less than three years. It took me five years. It took one guy nine years. And it was an incredibly arduous process. So the first prerequisite was you had to be very successful in the real world before you could actually go on stage. And so the world's changed now. But back in those days, if you gave a talk on business or and you didn't have a successful business background, 50% of the room would have just walked on you. Now it's 5%. You've kind of got people that were bricklaying last week and now coaching the next week, you know? So it's a different world now. But so that you had to have that prerequisite, and then you had to go through intense training, and you had to meet a whole kind of bunch of prerequisites. And it was an incredibly valuable process, and you had to walk the talk. You really had to be, whatever you were saying on stage, you actually had to be doing in your real life. Wow, what a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very valuable, very grateful for that training. I did that for a while and then I really felt like I had my own message. And I my message really is people think, oh, he's a money guy. He's it's all about money. It's all about yes and no. My real message is to get a life. There's no point dying the richest person in the cemetery. It's a short deal. And you better max it out. And and so what I'm about is what people actually come to me for is they're usually entrepreneurs or they're people that want to become entrepreneurs and they're usually working out 70, 80 hours a week and they're not making a lot of money. So I show them how to make a lot, lot more money in a lot less time so that they can have a life because the only purpose of money 
served only two purposes to money, and that's to get a life and give a life. So get a life is about you having an amazing life, and that's really what I'm about. So get a life and then give a life is about donating money to charity. There's no other purpose in money. This is a radical statement, but I sometimes stand on stage and I get, I say success is for losers. If you're out there trying to compete, be the best, and it's sort of, to me, okay, what are you trying to prove here? You know, like success, if we go a little bit deeper here, if everyone's up for that, success is based on the fact that I'm not really okay, that I need to do something to prove myself. I've I started like that, and that's where you should start. We all want to prove something. I was young, and I wanted to have this successful business. But then with that belief system, what happens is you end up spending all the money (laughs) because success is this endless wheel. You know, it's all about success and about getting bigger, and I had this office in the city, and I had a Porsche, and Italian suits and the whole shebang and I'm going to the great places and there's this huge amounts of money coming in and giant money going out the door and then one day like now there's a Lexus parked out the front of my driveway I never drive it I drive around in a Subaru Outback I don't care about that stuff anymore I, I still love staying in amazing places you know those elite hotels in Europe and but my main thing is get a life you know so for over 30 years i've taken three months holiday a year and elite hotels i'm a no star or a five star guy i'm no good in the middle i'm no good in the holiday inn but you can put me on some remote island surfing off the coast of sumatra in the mentawais and the islands up there that's four hours by boat from sumatra (laughs) so it's way out there or you can put me in an elite hotel but please don't put me in the holiday inn i don't like the middle and so that to me is skiing powder days and skiing, surfing, adventuring, going to remote places, meeting Indigenous people, meeting elite people. That's my deal. It's no one, to my knowledge, has ever laid on their deathbed and at the end of their life going, I, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. <laughs> 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 I don't think anyone's ever said that. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I could, I could totally understand what you're saying because I've heard uh, quite a few, um, you know, really wealthy people talk about this subject as well. Is, is once you become a certain amount of, you know, have a certain amount of wealth, the marginal factor on actually getting more of it, it just, it loses its credibility. It doesn't matter anymore because you've already got enough, and you could probably never spend what you've got anyway. So making more and going harder and harder and harder, it's just not worth it. Um, and then you figure out other things that you can do with that money, like you said, with charity and, and helping yeah. other people and having a life. If I was spending millions of dollars a year on myself, I don't want to make those people wrong. But if it was me, I'd go, my values are out of whack. That would be just me. I'd be like, I don't need to do that to make myself happy. And the other thing is a, th- a principle called gravity. Initial thoughts, you go, oh, this is amazing if I could get what he's about to say. So you, I'll give you a, a place. You give it place in Paris. You get another place in Aspen, and you got your penthouse in Sydney, and you've got another place in London, and you've got a you know, house with twelve cars in the garage, a Lambo and a Ferrari and a Porsche and all of this stuff. That's all gravity. Somebody's got to manage all of that, and that takes time. So at a certain point in time, when you've got too much stuff, it's actually less freedom. I know a lot of very rich people. The amount of times that they spend managing like their vast real estate holdings is significant. And I go, there's a certain point where now there is a way of actually being extremely wealthy 
and not having to manage stuff, but it's outside the realm of real estate. But that's another conversation, really. And so that's the diversification conversation. And that's a whole different kettle of fish. So it's something I'd suggest to everybody in the world we live in now. Ask yourself, what's your highest value? My highest value is freedom. That's it. Freedom and my own personal evolution. If it was success and constantly proving myself and competing with other people, then I'm just going to have to have more and more stuff, better cars and better this. And that's just an endless cycle. And it's in some ways just trying to seek validation. There are other people. Steve Jobs is one of these people. It's the game. That's different. That's not external validation. There's guys like Jobs and Warren Buffett. They're not seeking validation. They just love the game. I just love what I do. Look, I've tried to retire. I retired about 10 years ago. And after about six months, I went, this is the most boring thing I can imagine. <laughs> There's only so many waves and so many ski slopes I can go down. But after six months, I go, I want to give something back. And that's yeah. the other thing. You're probably not going to be all that happy unless you give something back. You know, if it's just take, 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 make, 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 after a few years, that's just going to feel a little bit hollow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs was a minim- minimalist, wasn't he? And um, Warren Buffett still lives in the original house um, yep. that he lived in before he was uh, mega wealthy as well. So yeah. and he still drives the same the same car, I believe, yeah. um, <laughs> which is incredible. You know, being that he's he's you know one of the the best investor of all time up there with um you know Sam Zell, the best real yeah. estate investor of all time. Yeah. So, mate, when you were on the circuit with Robert Kiyosaki, like, was that in America or was that in Australia? It was in Australia and New Zealand, but also I'd go over to, to the United States for trainings. I'd go over there with him and study with him. And as I said, this is all pre-Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It was a great period of time in my life. A long time ago now, but a great period. Fantastic. So you are one to actually promote no debt on, on your property. I've heard you speak about that before. Yeah. Do you think that people should strive to do that now? I mean, Robert is a very, very different way of thinking where, yeah. you know, debt makes you rich. You know, they're very, very uh, black and white views. Yeah. Would you say that people need should strive to have no debt or where do you stand no, now? No, it depends where you see yourself. If you can use debt wisely, you'll be far richer than just using cash. That's a fact. But I have yet to meet... A, I'll give you two viewpoints on this. Steve McKnight is one of the best real estate educators in the country and is a friend of mine. He says there's two kinds of debt. And what most people go to is the old saying, oh, oh, yeah, Steve, there's two kinds of debt, good debt and bad debt. And you go, no, bad debt and worse debt. And so (laughs) that's one viewpoint. The other thing is I've met lots of people who have had debt, significant debt, say that I'm completely okay with it. I've never had one of those people when they finally get out of debt. All of them say, wow, this feels so much like there's so much less weight on my shoulders. I sleep so much better at night. I just feel a lot more free. But it depends what you're aiming for. I just go back to the conversation and I'm not saying that my way is right. It's just right for me for somebody that's highest value is freedom. Because why would I want to be beholden to the bank? So I'm in business. I'm a that's a business partnership. People don't really look at it the way they should look at it, but it's you're in partnerships with, and guess what? Who has control? You're in a partnership with a partner that has ultimate control. If you don't pay, they'll go, thank you. We'll just have that now. And then I suppose you want to ask yourself, do I ever want to say 
I'm sorry. Do you ever want to say to your family, I'm really sorry, I screwed up, and now we've got nothing again? Making it's one thing. Keeping it is an entirely different matter. And so the minute you involve debt, you've got an entirely different scenario in your hands. You're no longer completely in control. Now, if you can manage it and you're okay with it, but I just go back to that statement, I've never met anybody when they finally got out of debt didn't say, this feels so much better, just emotionally. Yeah, I could totally agree with that. So when you're actually building up your portfolio, was yeah. it something that you had those on P&I and you paid them down over time or was it one quick chunk that you could just go bang, that property's gone, bang, that property's gone, the debt's off it? Well, eventually it was, yeah, it started off with debt. But really when I discovered the secret is just how to make big chunks of cash, I would buy stuff. I'd just go and make a lot of money and I'd just buy a block of units outright, bang. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it was more with cash, cash buyer. Yeah. And so like I say, if I'd have been willing to have debt as well and then factor that over time, I would have far more. But again, just going back to the previous statement, how much money do you actually need? If and only if you buy into the theory that money's only good for two things, to get a life and give a life. So being that you're um, obviously a cash flow investor, is predominantly now like your portfolio, would that be residential or commercial? It's all residential. There's a reason for this. I do believe that if you're incredibly savvy and you really know what you're doing, commercial is the way to go for a multitude of reasons. But the world is now changing so radically. So I'll give you an example. Just four or five years ago, what would be considered absolute blue chip real estate is CBD in Sydney. Absolute Mm. blue chip. And now the city's, you know, it's like you go in there, it's like a ghost town in the middle. Well, not a ghost town, but there's... I've got a friend of mine, she's very, very successful. She's got seven retail stores. And the best store used to be in the middle of the city, in the Strand Arcade. It's now the worst performing store. And just it just hasn't recovered after COVID. So what I do know about residential real estate is that no matter, because, you know, now we have a concept called work from home. So what's happened is that technology is making businesses and certain forms of real estate less conducive or obsolete. What I do know, and this is really important for everyone to listen to, no matter what technology we have, no matter how the world changes technologically, there's always going to be a need to park a human body in a some kind of home or unit, always. And so, and the population is only increasing. So for me, it's residential and it's primarily just one bedroom, one bedders, nice, clean, four-star, they're not five-star stuff, but really nice, really look after them, keep them updated, all that kind of stuff. And then the other thing is, and I'm not going to give it financial advice, but I used to be somebody that was only invested in real estate. I came from that background. It was I thought real estate was everything. I believe now in diversification. So I'm in other things now, you know, outside of real estate that are very safe, incredibly safe, and are much more protected in terms of geopolitically in terms of the changes of what's happening in the world at the moment. So I'm a big, big fan. I never used to be, but I'm a big, big fan of diversification. That doesn't mean that you should listen to anything I've got to say. This is not financial advice, but it is what Buffett and Dalio and all those guys talk about, is that they factor diversification in as in their top five. 
Beautiful. Well, I'm very, very interested. Would you be able to share what the uh, diversification it, it, it's is? Not, it's really not rocket science. It's just really blue chip shares and index funds. Okay. And it's just something that's very, very safe. But it's just knowing, like, again, I want to really stress this is not financial advice. And it's something that you'd really want to do your research on. Like, if you're going to be a residential real estate investor, a commercial investor, or anything that I've talked about, you really, really want to do your research. You know, I, I want to know what's happening. And so I don't want to just go to some, you know, Warren Buffett said one time, Wall Street is the only place where people that drive Rolls Royces talk to people, you know, they go to Wall Street and they talk to people that took the subway and they take advice from those people. So I kind of really want to know what the hell I'm doing so that if anyone else is involved, I can figure out what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can totally understand. It makes sense that you would be um, investing in, in residential property if you're not factoring any debt because you're getting yeah. cash flow from there. Are you mostly in real estate, but in apartments? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, in apartments. But but here's another thing. Look, what I would say to anybody, and this is going to be left field for a lot of people, but it's just based on my research of training tens of thousands of people, is that what will eventually undo you, you know, what will is your mindset. And as strange as this may sound to people, your ability to make money, you know, Tony Robbins said that, Becoming rich is 80% mindset. Sarah Blakely, who's a billionaire, who's the owner of Spanx or the founder of Spanx, she said becoming rich is 100% mindset. So my experience of is it's somewhere between 80 and 100%. So what usually happens is that people say to me, can you teach me, you know, how to do Facebook ads, YouTube ads, how to market, how to write copy, and all of that stuff is really important, but that's the 20%. That's what I call strategies. Or in your case, it's like, hey, Andrew, how do you actually structure a commercial property deal? That's the 20%. You've got to ask yourself, why is it that some investors make millions of dollars a year and some just struggle? Why is it that some businesses in the same industry, there's some guy that's that's going from $100,000 to $600,000 in one calendar year, and I've had a lot of those kinds of people, while another person is in the same industry that can never crack more than 80 or 100 grand? Why is that? They're, and they're all doing the similar things. And so that's your mindset. And my, people go, oh, your motiv- mindset, motivation. No, no, mindset, or the word I use is structure. That's actually your emotional component, the beliefs that you have around money, the way that you apply yourself to money. It's a very, very deep conversation. And the best way of explaining it is that everybody, George Lucas, the Star Wars guy, said, we all live in cages with the doors wide open. The doors are wide open, but we live in cages. And the way I would explain it to everybody is, is that we've all got these invisible bungee cords attached to our back. So we try to take off and we keep being pulled back. So my real skill, what, what I feel like, you know, yes, I can give you great strategies to make money, but what my students say who've studied with everybody, what I do better than anybody is cut the bungee cords is to being able to identify those bungee cords. And there's 18 mindset sabotage patterns that will destroy your ability to make money, but more importantly, keep it. And I can't tell you how many people have built up a portfolio, say 15 properties, and suddenly something goes wrong. 
generally, and, and I know this might sound strange to some of you, how could this possibly work? It all sounds a bit woo-woo, but just trust me, it's from my own experience, is that if you don't have a high level of deserving, like I really deserve the money or I deserve to have this level of a portfolio, you will pretty much certainly somehow sabotage the whole thing. Yeah, I can totally agree with it, mate. And building up a mindset and changing a mindset, like I've been doing that for the last six years, and it takes a long time to really yeah. break down those beliefs and having good information, good content like yours, listening to that on a regular basis to really change the way you think. Because it's so ingrained, you know, deep into your soul. It can be just anything, the way that you've seen your parents when they when you were a young kid, basically yeah. everything around you builds up who you are as a person. And and it does take a, a conscious effort to change the way you think. Yeah, look, I'll give you another example. If, if Let's say that if you're listening out there that you're a supporter of a football club, and whatever football club it is, and that your arch rivals are a different football club, and we'll call those those rivals the Bears, you know, or the, whatever they, you know, that club is, or the West Tigers or, the, or Carlton or whatever, right? And that's your arch enemy, and you really judge those guys. Could you become a member of that club that you oppose or judge? And the answer is, if you've got mental judgments like all those supporters, they're idiots and I hate that club, could you ever become one of those people? And the answer obviously is no. Or if you're of one religious persuasion and you have severe judgments against a group of other religious persuasion, could you become that? No. So what we know is that most people are loaded loaded with judgments against the rich and 90 plus percent of people it's like a senior journalist of the sydney morning herald one time said judging the rich isn't something we do in australia it's our national pastime and so bashing the rich so if you're doing that if you have judgments of the rich there's no way you can become rich Mm. and i don't see anybody out of the tens of thousands of people that i've coached around the world i never see anybody that becomes rich until they get rid of all their judgments about the rich because it's it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're just asking to be poor. And there's no benefit. It's like if there was some benefit in judging the rich, bashing the rich, well, great, but where's the – it's all the all downside. But those judgments are so deeply embedded and it takes time to get them out or discover actually what they really are. So – and then there's the whole other conversation about when you become rich, <laughs> there's not people, if you play some great football game and you, you know, the people, uh, you know, they're all applauding you, you know, or if you win your gold medal in Olympic games, but when you become rich, there's, there's not thousands of people applauding you. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually the opposite. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm glad we're talking about mindset because you actually said one thing one time that actually struck a chord with me. It's around if you saw a million dollars on a table, you would see $60,000 of passive income. Can you just talk us through that mindset? Well, it's a really good question. So if you say to most people, look, you'll make a million dollars, they see the million dollars because subconsciously or consciously they go, I'll buy a new car, I'll buy a new house, I'll buy this. I've changed my mindset so much that I actually can't see the million anymore. Because if you gave me a million dollars, I'm going to invest it. And from that, I only see the $60,000 that I'm getting a year. We're talking rough numbers. It could be more or less. Don't hold me to 66%. That's all I can see. I can't see it. So, so what do I mean by that? If you said I'm going to give you hundred grand, 
and you go, what's, hey, Brendan, I'm going to give you $100,000 in cash. What's your le- level of excitement from zero to 10? It's like zero. I go, what do I do with that? It's like, uh. whereas most people will be like, wow, $100,000. I go, well, $100,000 is really irrelevant. I go, what am I going to do with that? I mean, it's like, okay, I can get 10 grand. You know, I can get six grand a year. So, uh, this is just boring. But a million bucks a year, I can start to do some pretty exciting stuff. And that's at a million bucks, I, I start to go, well, oh, this is a little bit exciting. I've got, it's just a way of seeing money. That's all I'm trying to say. People see money as a, something that you spend. Whereas if you can get the mindset that it's only something that you invest, here's another way of explaining it. Is that income, yeah, the money that you make, if you think that's money, you think what you really need, don't think of it as money, think of it as capital. So capital is money is like a stash that you invest. That's what capital is. So somebody who was very wise said to me one time, don't spend your capital. So what most people are out there doing is they're spending their capital or their income because they don't actually understand that it's not the money. It's if you invest that money, if I invest a million dollars or whatever it is, that's money for life. It's just paying you. It's an asset. It's not something to be spent. Makes sense? Yeah, 100%. I think that's uh, Robert also says that as well, is that you, you start a business and you use business money to buy hard assets to keep on snowballing to increase cash flow. You don't just, you know, you have to go through the part of you get the capital and you need to put that into an asset that is somewhat passive instead of Correct. taking the capital and spending the capital on your lifestyle and you still have to keep staying on the treadmill yeah. in the business. And here's the other thing. Most of those developers, when they ended up retiring, I call this the developer's curse. So most of those developers retired with a fabulous home, a a holiday home, some really nice cars and not much else. Because what happens when you're a developer, and I saw this with like a a zillion of them, they start off acquiring passive income and they go, I'm getting 4%, 5%, 6%, 8%, whatever it is. And then after a few years, they look at their, all this, these properties that they build up and they go, wow, hmm. if I sell those, I could do a development and, you, and get 20% of my money. And it's true until something goes wrong. Yeah, that's right. And then active income, it's, <laughs> so, not, it's not passive. So the developer's curse, you know. I've just yeah. been, the last year I was just coaching somebody through all of this who had a big property portfolio and fell into this trap and then, Anyway, he did a development and it all went wrong. You're going to eventually, over a long period of time, make a mistake. But if you've got a lot of passive income, hopefully you don't have to say sorry. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, no one with a huge passive income has ever lost property to a bank, you know, ever gone bankrupt. You've got that cash flow coming in. So, mate, you mentioned before at the start of the podcast that you'd been through two recessions before. I'm interested to hear what you think of the current market at the moment, the inflationary market that we're in at 6.1%, and also like what type of assets right now are the right assets to be investing in in this kind of inflationary market where rates are going up? Well, I know what most people want to hear is forecasting and I will answer your question, but I will tell you what Dalio and Warren Buffett say is that no one can forecast the market. Warren Buffett says when you you get people that talk to you about forecasting, it tells you more about the forecasters than the actual forecast. And so it's fairly obvious at the moment that property's taken a, a whack. 
what I put my personal preference when buying property is timing. Like in the United States, I bought property of one in 2009, yeah, with 2008. They had the biggest recession since the Great Depression in 2008 with the, what we call the GFC when, you know, in their case, the Lehman Brothers and all of that stuff fell over. So I bought one block of land. It was a ski-in, ski-out block of land on a ski resort, obviously. That was valued at the time before 2008 at $850,000. I bought it for $137,000 from the bank. So I don't really like going around beating people up that are in a bad way, but I have no problems. I've bought properties from the bank before. So we're getting down to a very age-old concept called timing. And so I, I really, if I'm going to, you know, I'm not entering the market at the moment. I'm sitting on the sidelines watching. And so I have no problems buying properties from banks because the banks are happy to just get rid of them. But like I say, I don't really like going putting the screws on somebody that's just going through a really hard time. And in saying that, people are a bit bewildered that interest rates are like, oh, my God, interest rates have gone up. I go, how are they not going to go up? It's like it was the Bank of England about a year year ago. We are talking about we've got the lowest interest rates in 5,000 years. <laughs> so how are they not going to go up? And so historically, they run around 7% anyway, mortgage rates. So I'm waiting. Patience is sometimes really productive. And then, of course, it's always about the deal. And that's such a long time. We don't have time for, you know, if you find the right deal in any market and you actually know how to run your numbers, that's a whole other conversation. But it's not really the scope of this call to do that. That's a very complex conversation. The numbers and the timing for me is everything. So if you get your timing right, you can quicken the speed. Yeah, I totally agree. I will also say this. Having gone through two recessions, people will say, oh, we're in a recession. No, we're not. I remember I used to live in Manly during the last recession in the 90s, early 90s. And I would drive to from my place in Manly to the city, to my office in the city. And there were young men standing on the side of the road with big pieces of cardboard will work for a sign saying all in their suits with big smiles holding up a sign, we'll work for today. (laughs) So don't tell me it's a hard time because it's just. Oh, my God, it's like cakewalk at the moment compared to how bad it has been. But personally, I like doing business in recessions. In the two recessions, I did really, really well. Very little competition. Everybody becomes defeated. And should we go into one, just bear this in mind, that in my office during both of those recessions, the word recession was a swear word. You were not allowed to use it. We pretended there wasn't one and we didn't have one. And we operated in entirely different ways. So. Once that thought gets in your head and, you know, all the other agents would be sitting around going, oh, wring their hands and, oh, it's so bad, it's, that's the end. You've always got to be able to do the best you can to see opportunity. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, when you're in, a, in, in that kind of a market that we are in now, you see that the steam's just going out, you know, just getting a little bit easier to uh, have those negotiations. And I keep going back to Robert Kiyosaki. I don't mean to, but uh, in the uh, GFC, you know, that's where he made a big chunk of his money because he was liquid. The problem is in a market like this, money gets harder to borrow. So you have to be somewhat liquid and kind of basically time the market well, where you have the capital to be able to get in and get out. Well, you're talking about Robert. He had a business that could create Mm. flow. And like I say, if you don't have a business, you're making it harder for yourself. And I'm not saying you can't do it. That cash flow... Having big chunks of cash 
it's a whole different ball game. Yeah, that's it. So, mate, you've just written a new book called The Way Out. Can you give us a, a little bit of an overview, uh, a bit of a sneak peek of what that one's about? The Way Out, it's my new book. It's what I call my legacy book. I've written a few books and you know, one of them became a bestseller and done a lot of media interviews. And this one is what I call my legacy book. It's the best book I've ever written. In my opinion, it's so good, I'm offering a double your money back guarantee. If people don't like it, they can get double your money back if they buy it through a certain website. You can't guarantee that, of course, with bookstores. But essentially, it's really the way it is about escaping the grind, making more money and getting a life. That's how I would sum it up. And so it's for people that really want to do those three things, make more money, escape the grind and get a life. And in the book, you talk about five elements. Can you just share with us, like explain those two, uh, those five elements quickly? It's based on the concept that this is not a get-rich-quick book. This is not one of those things. This is actually a no BS kind of book. So, you know, there's enough stuff out there about, like, you know, how you can get rich overnight or in 47 seconds. That's just probably not going to happen unless you win the lottery. Let's face it, it's not going to happen. So wealth's created over time. And so you need this four essential elements. There's a fifth element, but I'll explain those. The first is what I call the architect, which is a purpose, the reason of, if you just start out, you're just going to make money and that's actually all it's about, you're probably not going to make much. Steve Jobs said, the journey is so hard that no rational person (laughs) would do it unless they had some sort of purpose or drive. And so it's about the architect, which is the vision of what your life is about, is about having a purpose as to why you're doing it. Mm. And then that's where we start from. That's the, you know, it's like Imagine if the second element, which is what I call the achiever, is the ability to actually achieve it, to set goals, to go through hardships, to just keep going, that, you know, like not procrastinate. So in explaining those two elements, it's a little bit like if you dropped a whole bunch of building materials on a block of land and you didn't have an architect to create a plan, then the house would look like a mess. So the architect creates the plan. And then the builder actually gets it done. And then the third element is what I call the sage. And this is the element that actually makes things easier. So there's no successful person I know that doesn't talk about their intuition or their their ability to come up with strategies that quicken the journey or to be able to kind of see the shortcut. Now, the way I would explain it, the difference between the sage and the achiever is it's a little bit if you've ever been skiing, it's like an, you've been on a chairlift. And if you look below, there's an achiever directly below the chairlift walking up the mountain. The sage takes the chairlift. They're like, they're not interested. They are not remotely interested in struggle. They're interested in getting there in the easiest way possible. So the best way of explaining this is that is the motto of my mentoring. So I have a mentoring program and this is the motto and this is the basis of my mentoring program. The most amount of money in the least amount of time with the shortest amount of effort. And that's the sage. And then there's the poet, which is just the ability to have fun. And so if you're running a team, it's the ability to have fun and create lightness and and actually enjoy life. So you need those four elements. You need, if, if you're going to, if you're actually going to do this journey effectively, otherwise you just, without the poet, you're just going to burn out. And, and so, and you're going to particularly need the achiever and the sage if you want to actually, and in the book, I describe all these strategies of 
how to actually do this in a concrete way. But there is a fifth element, and it's unusual to talk about this in a business or an investing context, and that's just your spirit. And that's a part of you that's beyond your personality, your, your beingness, as it were. And so it's sort of recognizing that there's a story I tell in the book about a king. A thousand years ago, there was a village. I just can't remember the name of this village now, but it's now in Afghanistan, but now just a very poor village. But back then, it was one of the biggest centers in Asia. And this king invaded India 17 times and became incredibly, incredibly rich. And when he was dying, he asked he asked to be put on this palanquin and, and go through his treasure room. And he started crying because he realized how many people he'd murdered and killed and to get this treasure and actually wasn't going with him. So what he did is he ordered that at his funeral that his hands would remain outside of the casket, palms up, to signify that he was leaving with nothing. And it's sort of a cautionary tale. You're here for a short period of time. Don't screw anybody over because what goes around comes around. And the money is... There's been a lot of rich people that have died and have been incredibly, incredibly unhappy and unfulfilled. Don't be one of those people. You can be very wealthy and fulfilled. And I would say, for want of a better word, have some kind of spiritual peace. Yeah. So it's trying to bring into balance. It's trying to, here's another way of saying this. Mike Tyson, the boxer, ex-heavyweight champion of the world, they asked him, what was the happiest time of your life? And he said, the three years I was in prison. And they went, what? He said, yeah, because I had peace. If you don't have peace, now, now, now if you're out there and you go, oh, all I need to do is go to prison, don't do that. <laughs> you're missing the point of the story. Yeah. But, yeah. But if you don't have peace, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. If you've got no peace of mind, if you're hassled, you're, you're stressed, you know, you're just trying to get ahead. And there will be times when you will be hassled and stressed. But if that's just an ongoing period of time and you have no spiritual center, it's just a pretty miserable life. You know, I've been to remote villages and really remote villages. I'll give you one example. I've been to a remote village, these islands that I talked about, the Mentawai, so that's, you, it takes you a couple of days to get to Sumatra and then you go four hours out in this stinky little boat and then you land on this one island and then you go from that island to an even more little tiny island. So we pull up there in the boat and all the kids run down. They have nothing. They've got nothing. Yeah, they, they, they've got all got enough food and they all live in houses, but compared to just lower middle-class people in Australia, they've got nothing. So all the kids run down and there's about 12, 10, about eight of us get off the boat and each kid will take your hand and walk you through a village. These kids have got no idea of nasty adult predators or, you know, you know, any of that kind of stuff. They're just beautiful kids. The people have all got smiles and they're all about 10 times happier than what we are. And they've got something. You know, I've been to other villages in Indonesia where they're so remote that we used to take balloons in, and when we'd blow up the balloons, the villagers had never seen balloons. No one owned a car, and they're all happy, and there's a simplicity about them. And so I suppose that's the fifth element, really, is it's just about by all means have the money, but if you really think that this is just that only money will make you happy, well, one of my first mentors was Tom Hopkins, and he said money will not make you happy, but you have the right to find that out for yourself. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Fantastic, mate. Well, today's been absolutely amazing. 
Um, final question, mate. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and also where to buy your book? If they to buy the book, go to richesfrombusiness.com and you can buy it for $19.95, $19.95. And if you buy it from that site, richesfrombusiness.com, we'll give you a double your money back guarantee that's valid for six months. If you don't think it's one of the greatest books of its type you've ever read, send it back to me with a receipt. I'll give you double your money back. So it's a no-brainer. And the books are just flying at the moment. We're just trying to keep up. So, And that offer's going to be around for a little while, but jump into richesfrombusiness.com. In terms of if you want to come to my mentoring program or anything like that, the best thing is VIP at brendanichols.com. Just email that. VIP at brendanichols.com, B-R-E-N-D-A-N-N-I-C-H-O-L-S.com. We occasionally, we take some new members into the mentoring program. You get to hang out with multimillionaires and people that are just starting out. And it's a phenomenal atmosphere and it's a very, very supportive atmosphere. You know, my goal is to try and get you there to where you want to go. And so, yeah, it's something that I still love. I'm fortunate I they say that if you find something you love, you'll never work another day in your life. That's right. Beautiful, mate. Well, I'm very, very excited. I got my book yesterday and I cannot wait to dive into it. Mate, so thank you for being on the show. Today's guest has been Brendan Nichols. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot, Andrew. That's the end of another great show. I'd like to thank my guest today and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to check out our other network podcasts. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.